We're going to go through the book of Galatians tonight, not the whole book, but uh, Galatians chapter 2. So we can open our Bibles up to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight as uh, we continue to study uh, the book of Galatians. I'm just going to read our text verse, which is verse 16, because we're going to be reading through the whole chapter as we uh, outline it and as we study it. But our text verse uh, is verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2. It says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And that's why I wanted to sing that song tonight, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And uh, we are secure in reference to our faith in Christ and what he did on Calvary, uh, then, uh, there, because there is no security in our works or our ability to try to save ourselves. And so this is a great chapter. Uh, I entitled it uh, Defense of the Faith, Your Defense of the Faith. And so it seems like in early Christianity, the Jews that got saved were still committed to keeping the ceremonial law of Moses. And that happens a lot. You leave some people to the Lord, and it's like they don't want to leave their faith or leave the church they're a part of. They want to continue on with those things. And uh, certainly they struggled with that in the early church uh, under uh, Peter's leadership and certainly Paul's leadership now. Uh, they had to deal with that, that situation. Uh, the Gentiles that had gotten saved refused to take part in Judaism. And uh, so that created problems among the believers. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians is going to try to straighten some of that out. The Apostle Peter struggled with making the break, but the Apostle Paul practiced pure Christianity. And uh, Peter, as we go through, we're going to see that there was some conflicts there because he was trying to appease the Jew. Uh, and yet uh, Paul comes on the scene uh, and uh, he gets saved, and he understands he's completely set free, justified by faith in Christ and what Christ did, and has nothing to do with the law. Paul is continuing the story of his life, uh, each detail being de the de a defense of the gospel, his apostleship, his faith. And uh, certainly we need to take a stand and defend our faith that we have in Christ, the call of God is upon us, and certainly that is precious, and we need to fulfill the call of God, and certainly the gospel of Christ was what men and women and boys and girls need to hear, uh, because it's through the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that they can be saved. And many times what we do is we have a tendency, as time goes by, to stray away from uh, keeping that focus and, and being that uh, direct in reference to how a person get, gets saved. So, defense of the faith. First of all, verses 1 through 6, and you have your lesson there, you can see, and we'll be giving you the fill-ins, and those that are watching via live stream, you'll be able to see the points up on the screen. Uh, hopefully, he turned it that way he can. Okay, good, amen. 
So personal faith in verse 1 through 6. Notice personal faith, faith he had a divine leading in his life. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and, and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And so Paul acknowledges the fact that it was by a divine leading, God directing him to go up to Jerusalem and to share the gospel with them and, uh, and really to identify with them of all that God was doing and, and what he was um, uh, moving in the Apostle Paul's life. And I think it's interesting that the divine leading that he had was that Paul traveled with good companions. And it's, it's a good thing for us uh, to be able to have uh, believers that can stand with us and alongside of us and do ministry together. And Paul was always, you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he always at the end of the, his uh, letters that he wrote would identify certain people uh, that were a help or a blessing in the ministry. And here he mentions that when he went up to Jerusalem, he went up with Barnabas. Uh, remember back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 27, it was Barnabas who introduced Paul to the other believers. It was Barnabas who explained to the other believers that Paul was no longer a persecutor of the church, but rather he was a preacher of the gospel. And so as Paul traveled, uh, certainly uh, he was rejoicing in the fact that he had someone to travel along with him. And then not only Barnabas, but in Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, because it says here that Titus was also with him, that Titus uh, was a young preacher, and Paul refers to him as his son in the faith. I'll turn over. I like that verse. I want to read that. Titus 1, 4 says, To Titus, my own son after the common faith. And he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God and the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so Paul had a divine leading in his life, but he was mindful of the fact uh, that God could use him in a powerful way if he would travel with faithful, good companions. And uh, you, listen, you can't, you can't accomplish uh, everything that God wants you to accomplish just all by yourself. And sometimes people just don't want anything to do with anybody else. They just don't think they need anybody else. But the reality is God blesses us when we stand together, when we pray together, when we soul win together, God blesses us in those endeavors. So Paul traveled with good companions, but also he traveled, according to verse 2, he traveled with good intentions. And uh, verse 2, he says, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the, unto them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. And so uh, he had good intentions because what he was doing was based on the revelation of God. And uh, we, you need to get some direction from the Lord. Uh, you need to read the scriptures. You need to depend on the word of God to let God speak to your heart and direct your path. So steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And if that being the case, then certainly we want to be able to get a revelation from God. Let God speak to your heart 
and to direct your life. And so he traveled with good intentions because he wanted to share the revelation of God. But not only did he travel with good intentions by the revelation of God, but by the reputation of others. Notice in verse 2, he said, He communicated unto them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run and had run in vain. And so Paul understood that there was others that could add credence to uh, what he believed, what he received, what he shared, what he preached, and it's good to have that confirmation. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And so Paul was willing to, to, to do that, uh, to live his life and develop his ministry on the reputation of others. And so uh, let's not be isolated from one another. One of the problems with this whole COVID-19 is it has scattered the believers. And I believe that has weakened people uh, because we have no longer experiencing that close connection with each other because we need each other in, as we live our Christian life. And, and what is going on in our world in which we live right now, I'm going to tell you, we do need each other to stand firm against these things that are going on. And uh, so the divine leading, we need to God direct us. And as we travel down the road of life, we need to travel with good intentions because of the fact we're helping each other and directing each other according to the will of God. So we see a divine leading. In verse 3 and 4, we see divided teaching. Oh boy, there's always trouble, amen? Uh, when everything, anything's going good, get ready because something's going to happen, amen? Notice in verse 3 and 4, he says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That's an interesting thing here. Titus was a Greek, but he was not required to be circumcised. Now, the problem when you get to Acts chapter 15 is that the, um, the Jews have, were, were taking a position that the Gentiles who got saved needed to observe the law and they needed to observe circumcision. And Paul says, now wait a minute. Our teaching together and our ministering together is going to be hindered if we don't acknowledge the fact, wait a minute, you did not force Titus as a Greek to be circumcised, so why are you treating other Gentiles in a different manner? And so the other Gentiles, they were requiring to be circumcised. I, I like how he words this, verse 4. He says that because of false brethren unawares brought in. <laughs> I mean, we could stop and preach on that for a while. And uh, it's always amazing that when God starts doing something in the church, God starts working in a believer's heart and their life. Now, all of a sudden, here comes this supposed brethren who have all these wild ideas about what your life should be, and you need to be more spiritual, so you need to listen to them. And the reality is Paul and the other apostles will settle this issue once and for all at the first church council in Acts chapter 15, and that we are saved by the grace of God. We're saved by faith, and it is not by the works of the law. 
And uh, so he says they came in. And why did they come in? They came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't want to become so cynical as I get older. Uh, I've seen a lot of things over the time frame that I've been saved and certainly been in ministry. And, uh, but sometimes I get suspect of people who come in and they think they're high and muddy, they're more spiritual than everybody else, and they think they've got everything all figured out. And uh, the problem is it divides the people with the false teaching. And so Paul uh, addresses this issue. In verse 5 and 6, notice there was a determined standing. In verse 5, it says, To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. I love, I love the word of God. I just love the way it states things, you know. It, it, it's almost like, okay, they gave him room. They gave them uh, 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 an opportunity to dialogue to uh, share their views on the matter. Uh, no, no, it says, to whom we gave place by subjection. No, <laughs> not even for an hour. He said, we didn't even entertain this. So he refused their teaching quickly. The best thing you can do when someone comes with some doctrine, some teaching that is contrary to what you have been taught is to get away from them immediately. Run away from them. Because of the fact that the devil has put them there for a reason. And he has put them there so they can cause you to doubt your faith and trip you up in your walk with God. And uh, Paul said, wait a minute, we didn't even play with this. We didn't even give them an hour. Uh, we, ju we just got rid of it quick. And so refused their teaching quickly. He rehearsed the truth diligently. Notice in verse 5, he says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So he was diligent, he rejected their teaching, and then was diligent to impress upon them the teaching in reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best thing you can do when false teachers try to drag you away and try to trip you up is to know what the word of God says and get into it and reaffirm what you believe and what you've been taught. That's the best thing you can do. Don't listen to what they have to say, especially on the Internet. I'll tell you, some of these guys on the Internet, I click them on just to see what they're talking about. And I'm like, can anybody actually honestly listen and believe that? But they do. You see people getting caught up in these things all the time. And so determine to stand with the Word of God. Determine to stand... Uh, with God's leading within the church and God's blessing you in the leadership that he has brought into your life. And so rehearse the truth diligently. And then in verse, verse 6, reject their person adversely. And uh, it's all right to say, I don't want nothing to do with you. It's all right to say, get out of here. In verse 6, it says, but of these who seem to be somewhat Whatsoever they were, <laughs> the word of God, wonderful, I like it. You know, it, but these seem to be somewhat, whatever they were. <laughs> and sometimes I think, I've dealt with people and I'm like, well, they seem like they're this, but I, I don't know what they are. And he says, what, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. 
for they, I've had people say that, well, yeah, but there's Dr. So-and-so. God's not impressed with that. But I've had people say, yeah, but they're just nice people. Nobody said they weren't nice people. The doctrine is wrong. The teaching is false. And so Paul says very clearly here, God accepteth no man's person, for they who seem to be somewhat in uh, conference added nothing to me. And so he just determined, I'm going to have to deal with this very directly, very quickly, very diligently. Uh, We need to just shut it down. And he did not want them to be captured and drawn away from their faith in the gospel. He did not want their faith in Christ to be corrupted. So the first thing he deals with this in, in this chapter is a personal faith. Your personal faith is precious. My faith in Christ is precious to me. And I don't want anything to corrupt that. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, I've heard a lot of things over the years. As a pastor, I've gotten a lot of literature across my desk. As a pastor, I've seen a lot of good pastors get caught up in things that are false. And you have to make a decision where are you going to stand and what are you going to do. So personal faith, protect your personal faith. Then there's a practicing faith in verse 7 through 14. Notice in verse 7, 8, there's a, it's clear in its comparison. And his practicing faith was the same gospel as Peter. Notice in verse 7, it says, But contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. And so, you know, Paul had defended his apostleship. He had defended the gospel. And now he's defending his faith in reference to it was a very practical faith. It was a practicing faith. It was not different from the gospel that Peter preached. And so he's using Peter as a means of giving credence or credibility to the gospel that he was preaching. The same thing that Peter preached to the Jew, Paul was preaching to the Gentile. And so that's the message we have. We preach the same gospel. What doesn't matter what generation it is, it doesn't matter what person it is you're talking to, we preach the same gospel. And so the same gospel as Peter. Then verse 8, clear comparison of what between Peter and Paul It was the same power as Peter. Notice in uh, verse 8, it says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. So the power that God placed upon preachers and missionaries and Christians in years gone by is the same power that we have. And oftentimes we get caught up. I know I do. I get so caught up with what God did in the past. Well, wait a minute. If he did it in the past, he can do it now. If the gospel of Christ worked in years gone by, then the gospel of Christ will work today. If the power to be able to deliver Peter worked in his life in Acts chapter 12, then certainly the power of Christ that worked in Peter and Paul is the power that can work in us. And so, a clear in his comparison. Notice it was common, this practicing faith was common in its fellowship. In verse 9, 
says, And when James Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So a common fellowship that they had. Notice they were co-labors that was co-labor that was offered. James, Peter, John, Paul, Barnabas, Titus. They were all co-laborers together, and uh, and so God has a work for each of us to do, whether it be Peter going to the circumcision or Paul going to the Gentile. Uh, we all have a work together, a co-labor together, uh, to be able to accomplish the work that God has given. So not only were they co-laborers offered together, but there was cooperation exercised in verse 9. And it says, And they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they to the circumcision. So there was this matter of cooperation together. They identified their role. Now, I, I love missions. I've always prayed about missions. I'm glad God has allowed me to go on the mission field over the years. Uh, but God has not called me to be a missionary. God's called me to be a pastor. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't connect with and cooperate with and coordinate with those that God has called to be missionaries. And God may not have called you the pastor, but God's called you to minister in the church. So there's to be cooperation uh, together as we co-labor for Christ. And then I see in verse 10, the compassion that was desired. It says, only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. And so he, they said, listen, we have this ministry. You're going to the Gentiles. We're going to the circumcision. Well, let's not forget about the poor. And I'll I tell you, there, it's a dangerous thing to do in ministry is to get so caught up with ministry that we forget that ministry is about people. It's not about organization. It's not about administration, although you have to have those things because God's not the author of confusion. And certainly God has gifted certain people with administrative skills and gifts, but it still is about people. And I was talking with Jimmy Powderly the other day, I think it was yesterday we were talking about getting the bus back on the road. And it's going to be in the fall before we can do that, and we're trying to make plans now how we can do that, get the bus back on the road. Uh, because of the fact that the children that used to come here on the bus and children that need to be here to come on the bus need to be picked up. And it's more than us just trying to coordinate and organize how many people is going to be in the church and all this, that, and the other. It's about getting children in under the gospel of Christ. Uh, I was talking with Pastor Petrozello the other day, and I need you to be praying about this because we're planning on starting junior church back up. And on August the 16th, we're going to have junior church at the 930 service. And so we're planning, get, we've got to get the children back in the church under the teaching of the Word of God. And uh, you say, why is that? Because we need to have compassion on those that do not know the gospel. We need to have compassion on people who have needs. 
and we are to minister to them by the grace of God. And so uh, we, we people say, well, you know, COVID-19, well, there's been other diseases and other problems and all this, that, and the other. And God, if God is our protector, we can have a faith that is real and a faith that practices and lives out that faith. And so there's a commonality in our fellowship together. There's clear comparison that the gospel worked for Peter and for Paul. And then at verse 11 through 14, there's a confrontational in as this practicing faith was confrontational in its expectation. And uh, notice in verse 11, whenever you get two people together, you got a problem. Amen. Uh, because everybody, that's like a... Um, Oh, a fellow was marooned on an island, and he built a, uh, a hut to live in, and he built a church of another hut, and he called it his church. And then after a while, and then the people came and found him, and he had built another hut over here. And he, they were like, well, what's that hut? He said, well, that's my, that's my church. And they said, well, what's that hut over there? Well, that's the other church I used to go to. We had a split, so I came over here. <laughs> confrontational and expectation you're always going to have conflict you're always going to have disagreements why because we're sinful people that's why so notice in verse 11 paul went right to the source of the problem but when peter was come to antioch i withstood him face to face because he was to be blamed you notice paul didn't go to others and start to gossip ring uh, he, didn't, he didn't turn on the uh, Baptist gossip chain. If there is a problem, go to the person that you have a problem with and get it settled. Uh, the gospel of Christ is too valuable for us to hinder its free exercise uh, because of personal differences. And so Pete, Paul went right to the source of the problem. And notice that Paul identified the inappropriate separation of Peter. In verse 12, it says, For before that certain uh, from, uh, came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which are of the circumcision. Here's the problem. When James showed up of the circumcision... Uh, he wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. But when James wasn't around, then he would have fellowship with the Gentiles. Uh, that's hypocritical. Uh, and Paul is directly confronting him about his oh, a false, inappropriate separation. Now, now listen, we, don't, don't put on a facade. Don't act like you're somebody or something that you're not. And uh, you're struggling spiritually. Find somebody who can help you grow spiritually. Uh, but listen, if you have problems with someone, get those problems right. Put it under the blood and uh, bring reconciliation and go on. And so Paul was willing to go to the source of the problem, and he was willing to identify what the problem is. Yeah, I remember my wife, when we were in Bible college, when we graduated, there was a girl out there, and she told my wife, I don't know, was it years later she told you that she hated you? Huh? At the altar? You know, I think she, my wife had come forward to the altar and everything, and this one girl came up there, and she said, you know, I've hated you in all these years and all this, that, and the other, but why? 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 
You know, I mean, no, no, you don't come and make accusations against someone. You come for the purpose of offering forgiveness and reconciliation. And if there is a problem, then identify what the problem is so that you can confess your faults one towards another, forgive one another, and then go on. But nobody wants to work with it that way. Uh, Paul exposed the hypocrisy of the people in verse 13. says, And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Uh, be assured of this, when hypocrisy exists in the life of the believer, it affects more than that person. It affects a multitude of people. The devil, listen, the devil likes to get in and ruin what God is doing, and one of the ways he does that is through division among the brethren because of the fact that we may be dissatisfied with someone and we won't get it right. And then Paul rebuked the inconsistency of their practice in verse 14. But when I saw they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So, I mean, he's just confronting him in reference to his inconsistency in his walk with God and his relationship with others. So, there's a, a, a personal faith that we have. There's a practicing faith. And then there's a proclaiming faith in verse 15 through 21. Notice in verse 15 it says, who, We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of, uh, uh, of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, but for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So justification, you're feeling there is justification applied to faith. I like what Ladd says in his book on theology of the New Testament. He states this, the root idea in justification is the declaration of God. Justification is not what you do. It is what God states. And so he says, the root of the idea and justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous, because in Christ he has come into a righteous relationship with God. God declares us justified because he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. But if you're not coming to God through Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, but you're trying to come through the law, God doesn't see you as righteous. And if he doesn't see you as righteous, he doesn't declare you as justified. I like what Thiessen says in his lectures on systematic theology. He says, in regeneration, man receives a new life and a new nature. In justification, it's a new standing. 
And so, yes, in regeneration, we do have a new life. And yes, we do have a new name written down in glory. But in justification, Paul's talking about justification, we have a new standing. We are standing in the presence of the Lord and before our God. So when you think about justification, boy, I don't know if we're going to make it here. Uh, first of all, justification is both negative and positive. And here's what I mean by that. First of all, it shows the insufficiency of the law. That's the negative aspect of it. Uh, justification is, is a declaration that God makes in reference to the righteousness of Christ. And so if the law cannot provide that righteousness in my life, then it is justification that reveals the insufficiency of the law. The law can't save you. No one's ever been saved by the law. And the reason why they haven't been saved by the law is because no man can keep the law. If you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. That's what James tells us. And so justification is important for us in reference to our faith because it is both negative and positive. It's negative because it shows the insufficiency of the law. However, it shows the power of faith. So that's the positive aspect of it. It is faith that gives us the power to be righteous in front of God. And that faith that gives us power to be righteous gives us the standing with God that we are justified. So it's both negative and positive. This faith, the justification of faith, is also, it's both practical and problematic. Uh, by that I mean it's difficult to solve, not settled. It's unresolved. That's what problematic means. So practical, it's practical because man is a sinner and cannot save itself himself. And so if man is a sinner and he can't save himself, how can he stand justified before God? And so it's very practical. Uh, it's an appealing position. The Jews in the passage here where we read, and he talks about the Jews by nature, Jews, the root word is Judah, which equals praise. So how can they that are not justified bring praise before the Lord? And then he says, not Gentiles, that it elevates, uh, they're elevated in their thinking uh, because they have to come to faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so both Jew and Gentile alike want that position of being justified. But I can't enter into that position of being justified unless I have the righteousness of Christ. And I get the righteousness of Christ by God's grace through faith. So it's an appealing position. It's a powerful notion. Peter knew himself to be a sinner. When Jesus would come to Peter and he was on the ship, he would respond to him, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter understood his condition and that he needed Christ's righteousness. Paul knew himself to be a sinner. Paul identifies himself as the chief of sinners. But yet he's justified before God because of the fact that he's had grace 
and faith, as faith has released the grace of God, where he receives the righteousness of Christ, and because he received the righteousness of Christ, now his standing before God is right. So it's a powerful notion that God would justify us by our faith. So it's a practical, because man is a sinner and cannot save himself. It's problematic because man wants to justify himself. Now, I gave a lot of cross-references here for you to look up, and you can do an extended study and look those verses up. But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 says, But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And so it's uh, problematic because man wants to justify himself, and he can't justify himself. And so it, it's, a, it's a situation that he cannot solve. It's unresolvable if he's trying to justify himself. But in the righteousness of Christ, we are declared justified. Well, notice in your notes there, number three, it's both binding and liberating. That's what verse 17 through 19 tells us. It's binding and liberating because, first of all, the binding because it condemns us as sinners. Verse 17 says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also are found sinners. Is this therefore Christ the is this is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. So what he's saying, you can't work your way into a justification. You can't work your way in the righteousness. And it binds us. It's binding because it condemns us as sinners. It's binding also, let her be there, because it tries to establish a wrong position. In verse 18, it tells us, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So it's binding not only because it condemns us as sinners, but it's binding because it tries to establish a wrong position. To be right now means I was wrong before. You can't say I'm right with God, but I've always been right with God. Try to lead somebody to the Lord, and they say, oh, I've always loved God. You are approaching this in a pragmatic way of trying to justify yourself. And there is no justification because right now you're a sinner and you were a sinner before. To reestablish a wrong position is, now is to transgress, it says. To deliberately break God's law. So it is a liberating because it is dying to what I cannot do to live by the life of another. So what verse 19 says, for though the law, I'm sorry, for, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. So I cannot accomplish and fulfill the law of God, but the liberating aspect of this matter of justification is that I die to what I can't do. I can't fulfill the law. So I die to the law, why? So that I might live unto God. So I die to what I cannot do so I might be able to live a life of someone else. 
Now on the back of your page, we'll do cut just a couple of minutes here and go through this. Verse 17 through 21, there's a valuation of the voice and the tense and the mood. I'll give you a little English lesson here, amen, uh, to try to make this, this passage uh, come alive. Mrs. Kennedy's not here, so I can go ahead and teach English, and I uh, won't have to worry about her telling me I was wrong, amen. But anyway, notice in verse 17, it says, but if while we seek to be justified, so I just put that on there, verse 17, we justified, looking at the tenses and the voice of that, it is in the aorist tense, which means there is an action begun at a point in time. So that he's just saying this, if there's a point in time where we've tried to be justified, it's passive, so the subject is receiving the action because of the fact that we cannot justify ourselves. We must be justified by Christ. Then in verse 18, notice I just put, put down, I build, because verse 18 it says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I build the, is in the present tense. It's a continuous action at the present time, and it's an active voice. So the subject is doing the action, and the amazing thing is this. He just said, he just saying, if I'm going to try to build these things, I've destroyed these things because I'm not justified in the eyes of God through the law. And so what happens is I make myself a transgressor of the law of God. Notice in verse 19, he says, for though... Uh, through the law, uh, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. A couple of things in verse 19. I am dead is in Aorist tense. Once again, there's a point where you have to die to self because it's in the active voice, so the subject is doing the action, so I have to die to self. It's in the indicative mood, so it's a statement of faith. And so he's saying, if I die, if, if I'm dead, then now I have the opportunity that I can, might be able to live before Christ. That's why verse 19 in the last part, it says, I might live. It's in the error and test. So there is a point where you have to die to self and a point where you have to be brought to life. It's in the subjective mood. I thought this was interesting because it means it's the mood of possibility and potential depending upon circumstances. So in other words, if you don't die to self, there's no possible way you can live for Christ. If you don't turn your back, as it were, just acknowledge the fact that you have to be dead to the law because you can't keep the law, then you can't be forgiven by Christ and you can't be uh, receiving new life from Christ that I might live. How can I live? There's, there is the possibility that I can live if I die to self. But if I don't die to self, there's no way that I can be alive in Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't approach God and think you can satisfy the demands of a holy God by keeping his law at the same time trusting Christ and Christ alone. You can't have it both ways. 
And then in verse 20, it's a classic verse that we often memorize, that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, that the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, first of all, he says, I'm crucified. And so there's that perfect tense means an action having been completed. I am crucified with Christ. So there's an action that has been completed. If you're not crucified with Christ, you don't have life. There has to be a point in time where you die to self and you live in Christ. So it's a passive voice. So the subject, that's I, that's me, is receiving the action. So it is God doing something in us as we are crucified with Christ. In other words, oh, um, Christ died for us, and because he died for us, now we can live in Christ. So he says, I'm crucified. Then he says, nevertheless, I live. And I live means in the present tense, it's a continuous action at the present time. So in other words, if you are alive in Christ, you continue to be alive in Christ. You don't stop being alive in Christ. And it's in the active voice, so the subject is doing the actions, indicative mood, so it's a statement of fact that if you are in Christ, you're alive because it is the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you that has given you life that you could not gain for yourself. And then he concludes, he says, but Christ liveth in me. Once again, if, if you're alive in Christ, it's a continuous action because it is Christ that is continuously with you. It is Christ that said, I'll never leave thee or never forsake thee. It is Christ that is continually giving us life. And so it is Christ that is doing the action. And it is Christ that has made the statement that if you are crucified with me, you are brought from death unto life. And that life is eternal. It continues on and on and on and on. So just a little grammar lesson there. Verse 21 is the conclusion of the chapter. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. How many people frustrate the grace of God because they want to ignore the reality of the death of Christ as the only means of giving them eternal life? If we could work to keep the law of God, then why would Christ have to die on Calvary? If we could give money to buy our way to heaven, then why would Christ have to die on Calvary? But Paul says this, I'm not frustrating, I'm not nullifying. I'm not doing away with the grace of God, for righteousness doesn't come by the law. Righteousness comes from Christ who died on the cross for you. And so uh, he acknowledges the fact that Christ is, did not die in vain, but rather he died to set us free from the bondage of our sin. That's a great chapter. Take some time and go through and study it a little bit more, reread through the chapter. Take your lessons. There's a lot of Bible cross-references I put in the lesson. You can look that up and uh, do a father's study. Well, we need to pray uh, for 